because we have not demonized the oil and gas industry, nor have we kind of turned our nose up at the renewables industry, and we don't have deep roots in either of those industries, we've really emerged as a pure net zero solutions provider. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode number 112 of the program happening right now, and it's another great one we have on deck as we welcome to the program part two of our Eight Rivers conversation. This time, we welcome their president and chief development officer, Mr. Damian Beauchamp, who we caught up with last week over in San Antonio. Great stuff from him on all things Eight Rivers and what they're doing in the carbon capture space, but we'll get to that here in just a second. But before we do that, let's hear from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas, or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits, whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates. Your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with the renewable. For more assistance, please call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can find out more about the company over at our website, erenewable.com. And then, of course, as always, give us a follow on our LinkedIn page, eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast. So that way you and your company can be featured in our Follower Friday series, where every week we take a LinkedIn follower of ours from the page and highlight what you and your company are doing in the energy transition and renewable energy space. Speaking of the energy transition, when you talk about net zero providers, there may be no better company that's innovating the space right now like Eight Rivers. They are all over the place right now. And of course, we had a chance to sit down with their co-founder as well as their chairman of the board, Mr. Bill Brown, in part one. I implore you, if you haven't done so, check out that episode. And then, of course, today we sit down with Mr. Damian Beauchamp, who talks all things carbon capture, breaks down kind of what their alum vet cycle does and kind of the game changer that it was, what they're doing in the hydrogen space, and a glimpse behind the curtain on how the creative process works and how this entire team works together. It's a fascinating listen. You will not be disappointed. So without further ado, here is from Eight Rivers, President, Chief Development Officer, Mr. Damian Beauchamp. You already started your own companies. What made you decide to join Eight Rivers? I think their approach to tackling very large industrial scale challenges was the most attractive thing. So I'd never met a company that was in-house developing technology at industrial scale. So these solutions to deploy a product, you're having to expend hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. I'd never seen anything like that. I'm relatively ambitious and it intrigued me to try to engage in innovation at that scale and and eight rivers tackling you know some of the largest challenges uh facing humanity uh intrigued me i've always wanted to have an impact and i felt like through eight rivers i could have the largest impact what is the alum fet vet and why is it so important to the eight rivers story yeah absolutely and it, and it is core to the history of eight rivers it is the first large-scale transformational technology that was broadly adopted and accepted by many leaders in the industry. 
And so what the alum FET vet cycle is, is a new way to, to generate power from hydrocarbon-based fuels, be it natural gas, coal, biomass, pet coke, what, what have you. If, it, if it's got carbon in it, we can take that into this alum FET vet cycle. It's a new thermodynamic cycle. We can generate power while capturing all of the CO2 inherently in the system without the use of any adsorbent. And what's interesting being here at this uh, SWERI conference in San Antonio right now is we just heard a gentleman from uh, Baker Hughes talking about adsorbents and commodity prices. And ammonia is very much an adsorbent. And ammonia just went from what was $400 a ton to $1,400 a ton. And so these commodity spikes are actually a risk to carbon capture industry. And the way the alum FETVET cycle has overcome that risk is that it uses no adsorbent. Rather, it burns carbonaceous fuel and pure oxygen and produces very pure CO2 and water. Water drops out as a liquid because you can condense it at, at reasonable temperatures. And the CO2 is recycled as the working fluid. Uh, the CO2 carries the heat and keeps the heat within the system. That's the other trick uh, to, to achieving high efficiency with carbon capture is that we keep the heat in the system rather than heat leaving out of the smokestack. That is one of the key features uh, of the alum fet cycle is the fact that it, it creates CO2 in what's called a supercritical state where it's both kind of has the properties of a gas and a liquid. And because of the properties of the liquid, you can pump it uh, to increase pressure rather than using compression. And pumping requires less energy than compressing. On the net power front, so Eight Rivers exclusively license the alum FETVET cycle when burning natural gas to net power. And so the net power team has full rights to that. The net power team operates that net power demonstration facility in Laporte, Texas, and that's their operation. Eight Rivers is a co-owner of net power, along with Occidental Petroleum, Constellation, McDermott, and most recently Baker Hughes. And so between all of the owners, we have a tremendous amount of expertise to bring to bear to help the management team at, at Net Power scale the alum FETVET cycle for natural gas. And so they look to license that technology all around the world to as many customers as, as they possibly can to essentially replace traditional forms of generation, be it natural gas combined cycled, fired by natural gas. And, and so they've got a whole deployment strategy both for utility scale, that's everything 150 megawatts and above, as well as industrial scale, that's 150 megawatts and below. But they are the exclusive licensor um, for that technology. At the same time, Eight Rivers has separately stood up three project companies. One's called Whitetail, that's in the UK. The other's Broadwing, that's in Decatur, Illinois. And another one, Coyote, in southwest Colorado. And those three projects will license the NetPower technology from NetPower. So even though we license the alum fet cycled natural gas to NetPower, NetPower has those rights. And so these project subsidiaries, which are their own LLCs, will license the technology for single use cases into those projects. Okay. So those projects, the Whitetail project in the UK is at Teesside. Semcorp is the counterparty on that. We're excited about that because the first 10 million pounds for the alum fet cycle, the first ever money for the alum fet cycle came from the UK government. And what's really interesting about that Whitetail project is we're now bringing home to the UK the technology they first funded at commercial scale. So we're excited about that one. 
And then Decatur, Illinois is significant because that's with ADM, Archer Daniel Midland, with Warwick Capital Partners funding that. And that's significant because that project sits atop the only existing Class 6 well where you can sequester CO2 today in the United States. So that's significant because the CO2 solution exists in that location. Not only the Alum Fepa cycle, but any carbon capture technology. So if you want to produce blue hydrogen from Eight Rivers Hydrogen Technology, if you want to do direct air capture, if you want to do anything that's related to transporting and storing large volumes of CO2 to get to net zero, you absolutely need transportation infrastructure to get it to, to sequestration sites primarily. I think there's lots of utilization coming online, but there are some promising large-scale applications of utilization today. But the biggest... The biggest risk, I would say, to the carbon capture industry is having access to sequestration sites. And ultimately, the gatekeeper there is the EPA. Where are we at right now with the EPA? I'm guessing they understand the importance of all this? The question is, do they understand it? It's, do they care and are they going to act, right? And so they absolutely do understand that that the bottleneck uh to getting class six wells is the permitting process. Now, some states like North Dakota, Wyoming, uh, and others have, have gained primacy. So the state itself has taken over the permitting process. Okay. And so they can permit their own class six wells. And I think that's, that's where you can get a, a higher degree of efficiency, if you will, in getting permits for the class six wells, um, because, you don't have as much backlog at the state level as you do the federal. So with the net zero goals that a lot of companies have in place and with what we're trying to push forward, is there enough existing infrastructure to get where we need to go right now? Absolutely not. So in the U.S., we've got over 5,700 miles of CO2 pipeline. That pipeline primarily connects geologic sources of CO2 to oil fields. And so we're pulling CO2 out of the ground, we're transporting it, and then using it for enhanced oil recovery. At some point, we need to fully transition all that geologic CO2 to purely anthropogenic CO2. Um, I think we have a significant offset opportunity and abatement opportunity in that alone, transitioning geologic uh, to anthropogenic-based CO2. From Eight Rivers' perspective, we look at the existing infrastructure and we say there's enough to get started. Okay. There's not enough today to actually achieve net zero, but there's enough infrastructure to get started. And, and that getting started is, is what we've taken the lead on. And, and what we've done is we focused on locations. You know, I mean, you hear it all the time in real estate, it's very cliche, location, location, location. It couldn't be more true for carbon capture because where you're not gonna have economic projects uh, is where there is no infrastructure. Uh, I'm not planning any project today at Eight Rivers, uh, none of us are at Eight Rivers, where there isn't a solution for CO2 to be transported or injected directly. So we talked about that Decatur project, that's got a class six well. Yeah. That infrastructure's there. So we focused on that infrastructure. Now, there are some other projects out there that are focusing on areas that don't have pipelines nearby and there's no clear site of a permit for a class six well. And so I think those are a little far off. But then we've also got the Coyote project, which is on a brownfield site with the Southern Ute Indian Reservation, uh, which has significant energy operations, has a history of already capturing significant amounts of carbon and preventing emissions. That site is two miles away from the Cortez pipeline, which goes down into the Permian. And so we're looking at sequestration solutions uh, after transporting it through that, that Cortez pipeline. So again, infrastructure there. Every mile of CO2 pipeline, it used to be that it was a million dollars. With the way things are going now, uh, it might be $2 million a mile. So that two-mile pipeline 
is only $4 million, but once you get to 10, 20, 60 miles, you're starting to have significant cost adders on top of the carbon capture project that, that one's developing. And now if we hop back over to that UK project, what's nice about that is, is there's a whole bunch of big oil and gas companies that have gotten together and said, listen, we can drill the sequestration wells offshore of the UK if the UK government will support it. And the UK government has supported that. And so what we're looking to do in the UK, we've you know, established partnerships with Navigator Terminal to, to store and ship CO2. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, Northern Endurance partners and uh, other sequestration options off the coast of, of the United Kingdom to, to store CO2. And that's where the, the CO2 from that Whitetail project will go. The point here is that we're focused on where is the infrastructure. The other place there's really good CO2 infrastructure beyond in kind of the southern part of the United States is up in Alberta. They have the Alberta, Alberta Carbon Trunk Line. That particular pipeline has significant capacity left to put CO2 in it, and the Alberta government recently announced uh, eight projects that are, that are moving forward in the, in the region. For as maligned as the oil and gas companies have been, we know what they're able to do when it comes to technology and when it comes to moving product. Is this a situation then where when it comes to moving CO2, this is where the oil and gas companies can step in, start constructing pipelines, and or are there other ways, more feasible ways, to move carbon capture, to move this CO2? I think there are ways to move CO2 outside of pipelines. I think you can look at using rail infrastructure. You know, if you really want to get far out there, maybe there's innovative ways that you, you can you can transport it through the air or something like this. But uh, what we like to focus on are, are the practical solutions. I mean, we've looked at transporting it in solid form at high density. Uh, even that, I think, increases the cost. I think the most efficient way to solve the problem is using the pipelines. Um, and I don't know, and for that reason, uh, Eight Rivers for a long time has, rather than demonize the oil and gas industry, we believe that they actually have some of the innovation and solutions for helping capture and transport significant amounts of CO2. I don't know of any other industry on earth that has more expertise in transporting, managing, and handling large volumes of gases and liquids than the oil and gas industry. And, and what we have with the carbon capture industry is a gas problem. We, we have to transport and inject a lot of gases. Not only that, expertise, but also they've got the largest reservoirs, storage vessels on earth in their reservoirs. So those are great vessels to store significant volumes of gases like CO2. Yeah. Owning those mineral rights and those storage vessels, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, they monetize the, the reservoir in, in one instance by extracting. It's kind of a stranded useless asset right now. And what we're saying from a carbon capture industry perspective is you can reutilize revitalize, repurpose, and remonetize, if you will, that reservoir now. Yeah. You can make money by putting CO2 back into it. And so let's figure out how to do that. Are you stunned that they haven't figured this out? Or maybe I think they have. Okay. No, they've known it. They've known it for a long time. Probably more than two decades, I think, they've, they've observed this. Maybe three now. So why not act on it? Why wait till now? I think they have been acting on it. Um, maybe not at large scale? Yeah, it's been an economic question. It's been a question of innovation. Markets today still operate <laughs> by that proverbial invisible hand, right? So if there isn't an economic solution, they have shareholders they have to answer to. And let's be honest, there's a tremendous amount of us in the public that are all screaming for clean that have some, in some way, directly or indirectly, some 
tie into the finances of oil and gas. And so they're protecting their shareholders full stop. And so I think that they've done a lot of investigation into what assets they have and how those can be utilized. But what they're really looking for, and this is the business they're not in, right? Oil and gas companies aren't in the business of creating compressors, pumps, new systems for power generation, new systems for refining. They lean on different industries, EPCs and different large-scale industrial development companies to bring those solutions to bear so that they can process their resources through those technological solutions. And to date, there haven't been any economic solutions to process their resource and then manage the CO2 at the back end. What Eight Rivers is focused on is not demonizing CO2, because CO2 isn't inherently bad, but rather managing CO2 in the most economic way possible. And what we're saying is that CO2 isn't a liability for the oil and gas industry. It is part of their process stream, of part of the, the oil and gas value chain, in fact, and that you can monetize and make money if you take a new approach to CO2. And, and just going back to it, right, CO2 isn't inherently bad. It's all about how it's managed. And so it's no different than fire, right? If I have a fire in my fireplace with my wife, that's ambiance. If our house is on fire, we're panicking. If we give our financial resources to Madoff, the way he manages that resource is going to be very different than the outcome if Warren Buffett manages the resource, right? And so what, what we're saying at Eight Rivers is, listen, oil and gas industry, we're the Buffetts. We're the fireplace. We know how to manage that resource appropriately such that you can make money and have a positive environmental impact. What's been the feedback? I think it's been tremendous. Uh, it's been skeptical. There's a lot of due diligence that needs to happen. The amount of capital that we're talking about at Eight Rivers is significant. We're talking about $25 billion a day every day from now until 2050 is what McKinsey's estimated needs to be spent to achieve net zero. $25 billion A day with a B. With a B. Every day uh, between from now, now and 2050. 2050. You got it. Why does that not get more run? I think it is. I think that's what everybody's digging into. I mean, you're seeing, you know, the, the slowest moving entity in the space, I would say, is ExxonMobil. And you're now seeing them mobilize in a big way. I think they've studied this space. You're seeing them purchase offshore assets off the shore of the Gulf Coast that are ideal for sequestration. So they're starting to mobilize, move, and, and really pick up in the space. Occidental Petroleum. They've been a leader in this space. I think they have, they have the capability over the next decade to become the largest clean fuels provider in the world. They've got the most infrastructure. They've got the most expertise in dealing with CO2. They've started making very good bets in technology. I'm, I'm a little bit biased because, obviously, they invested in the Alan Pfeffett cycle. Um, well, but I guess that speaks to the whole, their, their foresight. That, that's right. Yeah. And so I, I think their, their expertise, along with companies like Kinder Morgan and Denbury, all the companies that have uh, large-scale infrastructure that's transporting CO2 today and injecting CO2 have a head start, I think. I've said time and time again that we're going to need both renewables and fossil fuels to get through this energy transition. You guys have done a great job of putting your arm around both industries. Why do you think you've been so successful working with both sides? I think the, the lead and the, the sentiment has really come from our founder, Bill Brown. That is one of the things he focused on was that there's no single solution and that we need all the solutions available to solve this problem. Again, $25 billion a day from now to 2050. No single country or company is going to be able to, to deploy that kind of capital. 
and no one single solution would be able to accept all that capital. You can't produce a piece of equipment fast enough to consume all that capital. And so, you know, our approach has been, listen, it's it's all of the above. The renewables industry has done a very good job of optimizing solar and windmills, and there's not a whole lot of space to innovate there. Those technologies are very much optimized. Are there lab scale technologies that could come in the next 20, 30 years? Absolutely. But we're saying, listen, all these renewables have been deployed. There have never been more renewables deployed than there are today, yet CO2 emissions are just as high or higher than they've ever been. So until we get to the extreme or the maximum where we're in a purely renewables and electric society, the deployment of renewables is not directly correlated with the reduction in CO2. And we've seen that from the beginning. Therefore, we believe to solve this problem, somebody needed to physically go touch CO2 needed to capture the CO2 and, and, and put it underground. And so because we have not demonized the oil and gas industry, nor have we kind of turned our nose up at the renewables industry, and we don't have deep roots in either of those industries, we've really emerged as a pure net zero solutions provider where we can integrate the oil and gas company and carbon capture alongside renewables and electrolyzers and batteries. Every refinery is different based on what's coming into it. That is the approach that we've taken, is that no industrial solution is going to be cookie cutter. And so how do you develop the most economic solution to achieve the technical outcomes that one is looking for? So we start with the economics, and we design around that. And when it's not economic, we walk away. You guys aren't shy about your carbon capture ambitions. You guys aren't shy about how you're approaching hydrogen. What is your guys' stance on hydrogen, and how are you guys right now putting technology together and or processes together to bring hydrogen and carbon capture or work the two together? Yeah, so the, we're, we're certainly not the first ones to do what's so-called blue hydrogen or, or hydrogen with carbon capture. Um, what we have innovated and created is a solution that produces hydrogen very efficiently from an energy perspective using methane or other carbonaceous fuels while achieving 99% carbon capture. That I don't think has been achieved and you know we've announced intent to collaborate with Johnson Matty in integrating their solution into our broader system and, and we look to scale and deploy that. We think that that innovation, that innovation funny enough, came from this, the same person who invented the Alan Fefet cycle. There are skeptics, there were skeptics of the Alan Fefet cycle for a long time. They're probably going to be skeptics of uh, our hydrogen technology, but know that that's coming from kind of the same origins. And there'll be a couple that actually learn the lesson about the Alan Fefet cycle are going to look seriously at our hydrogen solution, and they are looking at it very seriously now. I mean, it's one of the primary reasons that SK invested $100 million into Eight Rivers at the beginning of March, uh, back when you did the interview with Bill. Now, the way we look at the hydrogen industry is, is we're looking to meet the hydrogen industry where it's at today. A lot of people talk about, well, is there going to be a hydrogen industry or is it going to develop? The approach we take is the hydrogen economy is here. There is a hydrogen market. Let's go meet the needs of that. Let's go clean that up. And so we look at refining applications and production of ammonia as the largest consumers of hydrogen today. And so we're focused on how do we build large scale zero emission units into those constructs and then, and industries, and then once we've built into that industry and new industries begin to emerge, we now have the base capacity of production to start to branch out and serve the needs of emerging industries. And so that really is our approach. We start at, at large scale to achieve very low cost and do it in the cleanest way possible.
caught Mr. Adam Goff's presentation over at Sarah Week. Tremendous job by him uh, regarding hydrogen transportation. So my question for you is, we've talked about the carbon capture infrastructure. Is the hydrogen infrastructure there, or are they suffering from the same malady as far as not having enough that carbon capture does? On, on the CO2 side, certainly. I think on the hydrogen side, that currently is not an issue for the hydrogen because the hydrogen is going to be produced locally where it's consumed. And that's the approach. Maybe it's the, the transport, I'm Maybe it's the transportation aspect of it. That Tran a little bit of an issue. It's only an issue if you're trying to to take hydrogen into industries where it's currently not being used. Okay. We're very much focused on where is hydrogen being consumed today, and let's make all that hydrogen zero emissions hydrogen. Gotcha. That's the near-term opportunity. Trying to put hydrogen into vehicles, I think you'd still be waiting on the market to develop before you reduce any emissions from any hydrogen production if you did that. Assuming that there are a whole bunch of industries that crop up where there are new uses for hydrogen, Certainly, transportation would be a, be an issue. There are some very innovative approaches out there that are being taken to transport it. I've seen everything from adsorbents into metal organic frameworks to achieve basically hydrogen in solid form at high density to liquid organic hydrogen carriers, as well as people putting it in blimps and just flying, floating the hydrogen to different locations. That's kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of wild solutions on the transport side for hydrogen. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and Williams, one of the large natural gas pipeline companies in the United States, they operate a tremendous amount of natural gas pipeline. They currently got funding from the Wyoming Energy Authority to look at blending hydrogen into their pipeline system. Now, embrittlement is a significant issue there of the, the metal of those pipelines, as well as looking at the downstream effects of having hydrogen, say, blended into your oven that's coming into your house. And so you first need to understand what are all your terminal consumers of the hydrogen, understand what that equipment can accept. But now what Williams is doing is they're saying, let's go take inventory of all the materials that make up our pipeline because different pipelines are made of different materials. And so they first have to inventory all that material and then say, okay, what is the maximum we believe that could be blended in these areas? And so they'll find that area which, which actually is the minimum, which drives the minimum, the material that drives the minimum amount of hydrogen. And if you look at the, the pipeline infrastructure and you say, well, we could blend up to 4% or 1%, that's a significant volume of hydrogen. And that's also a significant amount of decarbonization. But back to the real estate play, whoever gets that capacity first in those pipelines is going to be one of the largest hydrogen companies to establish itself in the United States because it will have overcome and, and been able to obtain the cheapest form of transport for its hydrogen. Is there an ETA for when this is going to come down the pike or? That, I, yeah, I'm not on the ground floor uh, of Williams, yeah. but, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure it's public on kind of the term of, of their funding to right, do this. Right. I would imagine that, you but know, it's going to oh, be a game changer if in, if in, yeah, if indeed happens. yeah. And, and in the UK, they, they already did this, this study okay. um, on their natural gas infrastructure. Yeah. In fact, the director of uh, engineering and operations, Steve Millward, uh, at Eight Rivers right now, formerly director of oil and gas at WSP, did the study of the UK pipeline system to understand, well, he was part of the study. I won't right. say he did it all himself. He had a team and, uh, I don't want his old team getting mad to make it, but so he was part of the, the study that looked at blending hydrogen into the UK system, and that's something they're currently moving ahead with.
This is obviously the second part of the conversation we've had with Eight Rivers. Uh, we had Mr. Bill Brown first, now you, Mr. Damian Beauchamp. But you guys have a tremendous executive team that, again, has churned out idea after idea. Uh, people forget the alum and the FET vet are both employees over at Eight Rivers. Uh, again, we mentioned Adam Goff, Cameron Hosey's done a phenomenal job as your guys' CEO. Give us a glimpse inside the boardroom, kind of what the creative process is for when you guys are looking at what you're going to do next and kind of how that conversation is had with the top brass over at Eight Rivers and what has made you guys so dadgum successful. How Eight Rivers Innovates starts with, with how the office was really set up. And so Bill, you know, coming from Wall Street, uh, set it up like a trading floor where the walls aren't high, everybody's out in the open. When the phone rings, it rings across the entire office. We got to pick it up in two rings and we can all turn around and talk to each other very quickly and have very rapid conversations and get answers very quickly. And so, so that, I think, established a kind of foundation for the way that we collaborate. But to give you an example, all of our solutions that we've developed today are a direct result of interacting with customers. So we take what we hear from customers. I like to say we do what are called listening campaigns. So we're not always in sales mode. Sometimes we just go out and listen. And, and there's a lot of value, and I think that not enough people listen. And so we listen to the issues that companies are having, and we try to meet them where they, where they currently are with solutions that will bring them to where we believe they need to be and where, where governments and regulation and, and society in general is saying where they need to be. And so we start with that as our construct. One, an open collaborative environment in the office. Two, customer-focused and solutions-oriented to customers' problems. But one specific example, Rodney and, and some of our group Naveed and, and some others worked on this hydrogen system, but there was a time in 2017 when, when Cam stopped over at my desk and he said, uh, Damien, you know, coming out of this ASU is all this nitrogen and we've got this new hydrogen system. What can you do with nitrogen and hydrogen? I said, well, that's ammonia. And then we started talking and he said, well, we got all this CO2. What can you do with that? I said, well, combine it with the ammonia and that's urea. And he kind of went away with like a curious look on his face and he came back with what we call a poikai. And Apoakai is a large zero emissions ammonia production facility. It's a project that we developed down in New Zealand, but now is being adopted all around the world. So, you know, people in the U.S. and North America are looking at it. Uh, a lot of uh, Asian clients are looking at it. Again, one of the key reasons that SK Group invested was this construct where we produce zero emissions power with zero emissions hydrogen. And it just so happens that the hydrogen and the power system that we have need an air separation unit for the oxygen. But a byproduct of that air separation unit is a tremendous amount of nitrogen. And so you combine that into a traditional ammonia synthesis, suddenly you've solved the hydrogen transport problem in ammonia, which I didn't cover earlier in the talk, but that's the primary transport solution in our opinion is, is ammonia in the near term because it's already transported for agricultural purposes. So that ammonia is a mechanism to transport large volumes of hydrogen. And so that's one direct example where, you know, you've got Cam who comes from a law background, an M&A background, and so he's thinking about it from a, a very economic perspective. He's interacting with me. You know, I'm a chemist, very much a salesperson, and so I'm taking the building blocks, throwing them together. But he kind of put together this whole construct of an actual project. And then we started, you know, pulling various entities into that to, to engineer that solution and, and get a very real world picture of what that that looked like from a technical perspective and an economic perspective. Another example, we're over in the Middle East at Atapac. 
and we're talking to big oil and gas companies over there. And it turns out they have a tremendous amount of sour gas. It's stranded. They can't get it out of the ground. And through those conversations, we develop solutions that can process sour gas very cheaply using CO2 as a solvent. So the common theme of that CO2 utilization is there. And then we can produce gas very cheaply because the initial asset is effectively valueless. The gas that's processed could then go into hydrogen production. Okay. It could go into the Allen-Fefet cycle. Gotcha. We can feed those systems with the CO2 that is produced then from the hydrocarbon, which is very interesting. And ultimately, you can sequester that that CO2 permanently underground. And so that's another example of where we listened to a customer who had a problem where they couldn't they couldn't utilize this resource. But if they could, they thought they might actually have the back-end economics to be able to do carbon capture as well. So if they could process this very cheap resource in an economic way, then maybe they could justify carbon capture on the back end of utilizing that resource. And that that's coming to fruition as well. And you know, we're hoping maybe in the next couple months we'll have a big announcement around that. As Cam says, we had the dubious advantage of being 10 years too early and the luck of not dying in the process. Yeah, everything we've been creating, people have been scratching their head for 10, 15 years asking us, what are you doing? What's the market for this Alan Fefet cycle? Why are you doing this? What's the market for the CO2? You know, who, who wants this thing? Well, what's the efficiency? And they were comparing our efficiency to, you know, unabated units and then on the hydrogen front they're saying well listen hydrogen with carbon capture isn't isn't going to be practical it doesn't compete with with gray hydrogen or traditional smr and now everybody's looking for the most economic solutions to do power generation with hydrocarbon to do because there's there's no reduction in consumption never in history have we ever consumed less of anything and that includes biomass i mean process that what are we going to do not only is the population growing, but people are coming up the socioeconomic ladder. And as they come up the socioeconomic ladder, they're going to consume more resources. They're going to consume more oil and gas. Why? Because that industry has been around for 200, 150 years, and they've optimized their costs such that the price per unit of energy is the cheapest of anything on Earth from a consistent basis, right? These groups likely aren't going to be able to afford putting in just purely solar panels in the first instance or windmills. And even if they do that, they won't have the assurance of storage. They won't be able to afford the storage. So the question is, how do you clean up the existing really cheap energy to allow these economies to develop, to start to deploy in parallel the renewable resources or the pure zero emission resources from an energy production perspective. What projects or products that Eight Rivers is working on right now that you may or may not be able to speak about are you and your team or specifically you, are you most excited about right now and moving forward? The most uh, exciting thing I'm looking at is the tremendous amount of capital right now that is kind of at the starting line, just digging its hooves into the dirt, wanting to take off, and it's looking for a home. And again, we had the dubious advantage of being 10 years too early, and we think we can put a lot of that capital to work. To date, Eight Rivers has raised or caused capital to flow in the amount of half a billion dollars into this space. I think that's more than any other single entity on earth into carbon capture. And so we've got the track record. Not only have we caused those investments to happen, but none of those investors have lost their money. They've all made money in the process. We've never had a down round on anything. And, and what's really exciting is to think about our zero degree fund. Next thing we want to do is raise half a billion dollars into a fund, and we're going to help manage that fund with some of the largest capital management and sovereign wealth funds in, in the world. 
and we're going to help them deploy that capital into maybe our projects and our technologies, but also into other projects and technologies that are being developed by other people. Again, $25 billion a day. No single entity is going to do that. We want to be that partner that not only helps innovate on a capital perspective, but innovates from an investment perspective as well. We want to be good stewards of capital. We have a track record of, of, of doing that. Um, and we've had a lot of big entities put a lot of trust in us, and, and we think that'll continue. Young lady, I heard at a panel just last week, Ms. Jessica Raines from Baker Hughes talked about maybe the elephant in the room when it comes to carbon capture is, and I guess elephants in the room, is time and money uh, to get all of the carbon capture done or to get these processes started so that we can get carbon capture done. Where are you at? Do we think? Do you think we have enough time? I mean, you've already talked a little bit about the money and the m- amount that's been invested into Eight Rivers. Do we have enough time to get it all done? I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to say that that time can be solved with faster capital deployment. You know, we've been taught a lesson here with this pandemic that supply chains can be significantly impeded by events that are outside any single human or government's control. Supply chains have been impeded significantly. If that happens again, you know, even right now, it becomes a challenge and it's something we're looking to solve and de-risk long term for our business. I think if you look at what happened during the Industrial Revolution and and if you look at the way the world responded in World War II, I mean, it's a great example, right? I, I think there was a time when, when the U.S. was entering World War II and Germany didn't believe. They thought it was laughable that the U.S. thought they could produce something on the order of 20,000 ships a year. They thought that was absolutely impossible. And, and towards the end, I think it came close to like 10,000 ships a year were constructed in the U.S. So I think we are capable of, of achieving scale rapidly. Again, there's some significant hurdles that could be taken down on the regulatory front. So with government support, faster permitting from the government's perspective, I I think we can achieve that scale. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Damian Beauchamp. You can find all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on our website, eRenewable.com. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, and again, we know that a lot of you do, give us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about the energy transition and renewable energy from the podcast than you knew about it before you stop by. Stay tuned, as always, for the U of H series we've got going on right now, Cougs Energizing the Energy Transition. It's been absolutely incredible so far. Shout out, as always, to Dr. Ramanan Krishnamurti and... My co-host for the series, Miss Afriya Nasir. She's been wonderful, and again, we've learned so much from these young men and women that have been a part of this series. You do not want to miss that. Check it out. We've still got part six going down this week with Mr. Uchenna Ube, and then two more going down next week, and then, of course, the live event. Stay tuned for that. We'll have all the details for you. If you're in the Houston area, definitely check it out. You will not be disappointed. As always, got to give a shout-out to the entire eRenewable team and Mike, Roger, Al, All the guests, all the audience, without you, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. (music) 